Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. In this episode, we'll be looking to the clouds above us while we ponder the many historical accounts of very bizarre things that have fallen from the sky. And particularly, we will examine one of the oddest events we have ever come across in our search for the weird and unknown. And to this day, it remains one of the great unexplained mysteries of the last 150 years. Well, actually, that's not exactly true. It has been explained, many times, both by scientists and amateur alike. But all of their conclusions remain, ultimately, unsatisfying, and often illogical. So put up your umbrellas and open your mind to this episode of Epic High Strangeness. On March 9, 1876, the New York Times headline declared, Flesh Descending in a Shower, an Astounding Phenomenon in Kentucky. Fresh meat like mutton or venison falling from a clear sky. And this headline was no exaggeration. It would go on to say, and we're quoting the entire article here, On last Friday, a shower of meat fell near the house of Alan Crouch, who lives some two or three miles from the Olympic Springs in the southern portion of Bath County, covering a strip of ground about 100 yards in length and 50 wide. Mrs. Crouch was out in the yard at the time, engaged in making soap, when meat, which looked like beef, began to fall around her. The sky was perfectly clear at the time, and she said it fell like large snowflakes, the pieces at a general thing not being much larger. One piece fell near her, which was three or four inches square. Mr. Harrison Gill, whose veracity is unquestionable, and from whom we obtained the above facts, hearing of the occurrence, visited the locality the next day and says he saw particles of meat sticking to the fences and scattered over the ground. The meat, when it first fell, appeared to be perfectly fresh. The correspondent of the Louisville Commercial, writing from Mount Sterling, corroborates the above and says the pieces of flesh were of various sizes and shapes, some of them being two inches square. Two gentlemen who tasted the meat expressed the opinion that it was either mutton, or venison. This event would become known as the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. Understandably, this became national news, and journalists from all over the country descended upon the Crouch Farm located in Olympian Fields, Kentucky. The story would soon even reach the pages of the prestigious journal, Scientific American. Mrs. Crouch would go on to explain exactly her experience of this carnal reign to the New York Herald. On March 3rd, she was at home, in the yard with her grandson, when the flesh began to fall between 11 a.m. and noon. She noted particularly, once again, that it was a clear, sunny day without a cloud in the sky. As a large piece of meat hit the earth, Mrs. Crouch said that she heard a snapping noise when it struck, while her grandson cried in surprised disbelief. Grandma, it's snowing! They both fled to the safety of their farmhouse, the shower itself would only last a few minutes. She would not go back outside or examine the flesh until her husband returned later that afternoon. Being a devout woman, Mrs. Crouch would tell the Herald, as her husband and son were not home at the time, that the vague idea that they 
had been torn to pieces and their remains were being brought home to me in this way by the wind flashed through my mind at the moment. She would also go on to say that it was a miracle of God, which as yet we do not understand. It may have been a warning, as coming events are said to cast their shadow before. As her husband and son would indeed return safely that afternoon, whole and intact, Mrs. Crouch could only explain this phenomenon as a prophetic warning of some kind sent from God himself. The reporter pressed on, So, Mrs. Crouch, are you certain it came from the clouds? I am not, she answered. All I know is that it came from someplace above my head. Most of the Crouch's neighbors would testify to her upstanding character. When the Herald questioned a Mr. Tolliver, saying, Do you think that Mrs. Crouch is deceiving the people about this matter? He replied, Oh no, sir. She is too good of a woman to be guilty of anything of that kind. So you believe her, the reporter asked. Yes, sir, I do. The local neighbor butcher named Fritz added, I know the whole family. They are members of a church, are good people, and I believe everything that they say about this meat business is as true as gospel. But just as human beings will always be, well, human beings, there would also be other more anonymous whisperings. The Herald journalist informed Mrs. Crouch that a rumor was circulating to the effect that she and her husband had quarreled several times recently about selling the farm, she being in favor and he opposed to the idea, and that she had done this flesh trick in order to scare the old man into her way of thinking and thereby accomplish with fright what she could not do with persuasion. Mrs. Crouch laughed at the idea and admitted that, yes, she wanted to sell the property, but she and Mr. Crouch had never quarreled about it. She claimed that he wanted to sell it more than she did. Mr. Crouch, who was sitting by her side during the interview, confirmed the truth of her statement. Other neighbors, particularly a C.J. Craig, would claim that he himself had heard of the incident and headed over to the Crouch farm just two hours after the flesh had fallen to see it for himself. He saw the meat hanging on the briars, sticking to the fence, and lying upon the ground. He says that he examined the flesh and that it was very soft and tender and bloodless. But he did see some stains on the fence and ground indicating that the blood may have dried. He said the smell was rather peculiar but resembling that of fresh blood more than anything. He would pick up some of the pieces and take them with him. Others would do the same. And yes, some of them ate it. Well, of course they did. The New York Herald bargained with a local Irish railroad worker named Jimmy Welsh, daring him to eat the mystery meat in return for one dollar. Jimmy agreed. The journalist also ordered pickles and crackers and other side dishes to help encourage Jimmy to partake. Jimmy took the meat up on his fork, And then after two or three unsuccessful attempts to actually get it in his mouth, he then laid it back down on his plate. The journalist inquired as to why he was hesitating. He said he wanted some whiskey to wash it down. The whiskey was ordered. He still did not eat the meat and was turning a little green. He then claimed he was suddenly not hungry. The journalist offered him $5 to eat the small two-inch by three-inch piece of flesh. Then, all of a sudden, Jimmy remembered that it was Lent, and his deeply held morals forbade him to eat the meat 
for religious purposes. He asked, however, if he could still drink the whiskey, telling the reporter that he should return after Lent and that he would be happy to eat fowl, crow, or skunk. He knocked back the whiskey and went on his way back to work. It might also be noted here, and in Jimmy's defense, that Mrs. Crouch had claimed that some of her farm cats and dogs had eaten the flesh immediately after it fallen. And one of the dogs had gotten deathly ill, although she couldn't state for sure if the cause of the sickness was the meat. So who can blame him? Jimmy Welsh might be willing to eat a lot of things, but he was not about to eat the flesh that had fallen from the sky. But there would be others who did. The aforementioned local butcher Frisbee or Fritz was visited by a reporter and asked straight away if he had eaten any of the Crouch Farm meat. He said that yes, he had indeed, and had done it in front of several witnesses that had warned him that it would be a dangerous experiment. He replied that he wasn't worried and that his constitution could stand like that of a rooster or a cat. Here is his exact description of the meat. Well, I have handled all kinds of meat and I never tasted anything exactly like it before. I am not prepared for certain to say that the taste resembled fish, flesh, or fowl. It looked more like mutton than anything else I can compare it to. And the smell was a new one to me. And there was a milky, watery fluid that oozed from it as I handled it. It had a fleshy feel, and I tore some of it apart. And it was as tender as veal or young lamb, or more so. I also noticed when I pulled it apart that it had a stringy fiber running through it, apparently in all directions. Local grocer Joe Jackson confirmed that he too had eaten some of the meat, but had spat it out very quickly and hadn't had it in his mouth long enough to actually taste it. He said that the meat had a brown mucus that came from it. He said the smell was offensive in the extreme, like that of a dead body. Jackson also confessed that he still had at least a half bushel of the meat now preserved in alcohol. That meat would soon make its way into the hands of some of the most respected scientists in the country. The first was Leopold Brandeis, writing for a sanitarian magazine, a journal regarding public health and sanitation science, who viewed a prepared slide of the sample and claimed that the substance was indeed not meat at all, and nothing less than a flesh-colored, jelly-like colony of bacteria that was known to swell up during a rain and called Nostoc. Therefore, the seemingly strange event was entirely in harmony with natural laws. In folklore since the 1400s, Nostoc was commonly referred to as witch's butter or star jelly and has its own legends attached to it, such as believing it was produced from meteor showers and of extraterrestrial origins. It is called Caca de Luna, or moon's excrement, by the locals in the state of Veracruz, Mexico. So was the Kentucky meat shower, after all, just some, well, moon poo? There have also been some rather astounding star jelly, or Nostock, stories in recent years. The most incredible one, in 1950, when a report in the Philadelphia Inquirer was headlined, Flying Saucer Just Dissolves. It told of four police officers encountering what they thought was UFO debris. They would describe it as a domed disc of quivering jelly, six feet in diameter, one foot thick at the center, and an inch or two near the edge. 
When they tried to pick it up, it dissolved into an odorless, sticky scum. This incident inspired the 1958 movie, The Blob. And we can't forget that in the 1978 film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the alien spores that fall to Earth in a rain shower formed blobs of jelly, which grow into the very flowering seed pods, which would breed the pod people, or body snatchers. That's your Nostock trivia for the day. In 1919, Charles Fort would author his seminal anti-establishment fringe pseudoscience publication entitled The Book of the Damned. Within it, he would report and examine hundreds of stories and tales of animals falling from the sky. But in its pages, too, he would not deny the existence of Nostock or star jelly, but believed that the scientists were being too conservative, close-minded, and provincial about what it really was. He believed that it had fallen from the sky, just like the meat, but he pleaded with his readers as to its cause. Or that, far up or far away, the whole sky is gelatinous? That meteors tear through and detach fragments? That fragments are brought down by storms? That the twinkling of stars is penetration of light through something that quivers? I think myself that it would be absurd to say that the whole sky is gelatinous. It seems more acceptable that only certain areas are. Meteor fragments falling from a gelatinous sky? Yeah. Fort would go on to offer increasingly outlandish and ridiculous origin stories for many unusual physical phenomena, especially those of things falling from the sky. Some of his claims would include debris falling from intergalactic space battles or cargo ships, a giant Sargasso-like sea in the sky where all animals on Earth originated and would someday return, and even pesky interstellar aliens that would simply toss something to Earth like a stone, coin, or a nail just to prank unsuspecting humans for their own enjoyment and delight, conjuring up, in my mind, an extraterrestrial fraternity party gone amok. But Fort wasn't so much intending to prove the veracity of his own crazy theories as much as he was trying to debunk what he thought were the ridiculous hypotheses that so-called scientists were tossing around like hot potatoes. Their ideas were to him just as ridiculous as his were to them, but their words were taken seriously because they had college degrees and honorific titles. His ideas were not regarded seriously, nor were the ideas of any curious observer that didn't have the proper credentials. The title, The Book of the Damned, referred to those, like himself, as the damned, those that were not intellectually accepted in the scientific world which had now been professionalized, and now housed the very seats of scientific inquiry in expensive and elitist colleges and universities. That was his beef, so to speak. Yet, there was a problem with both Fort's science fiction-inspired conclusion and Brandeis's supposedly expert scientific explanation. Mrs. Crouch had been very clear about the fact that it had been a sunny, cloudless day. There hadn't been any precipitation that might create the Nostock. And furthermore, there had not been any rain to tug any dangling meteorite shards out of the gelatinous heavens. However, conceding to the Brandeis theory, the popular and esteemed Scientific American magazine would proclaim written in its pages that it had been comparatively easy to identify the substance and fix its status. This Kentucky wonder is no more or less 
than Nostock. The mystery had been solved. The debate was over. Well, not quite yet. On March 12, 1876, the New York Times claimed that the substance had been examined and analyzed by Professor Lawrence Smith of Kentucky, and he claimed that it was instead the dried spawn of some kind of reptile. Doubtless a frog, he said. And just a note here, frogs are amphibians, not reptiles, but we digress. So, Nostock was out. Frog spawn was in. They had once again figured out the mystery. But then, in April, Scientific American noted that Dr. A. Mead Edwards, president of the Newark Scientific Association, had read Brandeis' theory of the Kentucky Nostock and initially did not doubt his claim as he was a reputable gentleman. However, Dr. Edwards had also called upon a Dr. Alan McLean Hamilton of New York to microscopically examine a sample of the fleshy Kentucky substance and analyze it. Dr. Hamilton concluded, through strict scientific analysis, that it was mammalian lung tissue. And wait, it gets better. And most likely, lung tissue from a dead horse, or possibly even a human infant. It seems the structural composition of both horse lung and human infant lung are too similar to distinguish one from the other. Dr. Edwards requested and received another sample to test himself, in which he indeed found it was mammalian muscle fibers, cartilage, and connective tissue. Others who had also tested the samples now agreed with Dr. Edwards. Scientific American now with egg on their face after being so arrogantly certain of Brandeis's Nostock theory, announced that, hey, wait a minute, it's really lung tissue. But they did conclude the announcement with the following caveat. The source or origin of the meat is, however, sub judice. In other words, still under consideration. Good call. So now, Nostock was out, frog spawn was out, horse or infant lung tissue was in. But a mystery still very much remained. How did horse or infant lung tissue come to fall upon the Crouch Farm? Dr. Mead would answer, as to whence it came from, I have no theory. None at all. Yet another answer would soon be provided. After all the theories that had transpired between scientists, they had failed to listen to the locals, who had always claimed they knew exactly what it was and how it got there. Vulture vomit. I'll say it again. I mean, it's worth saying. Vulture vomit. L.D. Kastenbein, M.D., a professor of chemistry at the Louisville College of Pharmacy, published an article on the matter that same year in the Louisville Medical Journal. Having obtained a sample of his own, Kastenbein set fire to it and observed that it smelt distinctly of rancid mutton. The only plausible theory explanatory of this anomalous shower appears to me to be that suggested by the old Ohio farmer the disgorgement of some vultures that were sailing over the spot. From their immense height, the particles were scattered by the prevailing wind over the ground, he wrote. The variety of tissue discovered, muscular, connective, fatty, structureless, etc., can be explained only by this theory. Two species of vulture indigenous to Kentucky, the black vulture and the turkey vulture, are both known to projectile vomit their stomach contents as either a defense mechanism or to make themselves light enough for flight, particularly when they are frightened. 
And often, the very sight of one vulture vomiting could prompt all the others in the kettle, or group, to do likewise. We all know what that's like. So it appears that they might have eaten a dead horse nearby, and then once in the sky, got agitated and puked all over the Crouch farm. Since no young children were found missing in the area, it might be presumed, happily, that on that day, the vultures had indeed mercifully passed on a light brunch of human infant. Maybe so? Maybe? Well, as luck would have it, on our last episode, we talked with writer Colin Dickey about his book, The Unidentified, where he discusses the Kentucky meat shower in detail. So we asked him about it. And believe it or not, Colin himself has most likely seen an actual piece of flesh from the meat shower in Lexington, Kentucky, at where else other than Transylvania University. I have to ask you, do you think it's vulture vomit? Um, I think that um, the vulture vomit uh, is probably the the most likely answer, but I think it's a crappy answer. Um, I just, you know, I mean, like that amount of meat coming out of vultures would require a lot of vultures. And the fact that there was no reporting of like, you know, a large swarm of vultures or flock of vultures or whatever um, makes it to me seem slightly dubious. But, you know, compared to everything else, it's probably the best we're going to get. So, you know, you talked about this was Charles Fort, you know, saying just just bask in the in the in the weirdness of this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's that's why I like the story is because it doesn't lend itself to something very uh, straightforward, but it also doesn't really um, lend itself to wild, you know, far-fetched conspiracy theories. It just sort of, you know, exists in a, a sort of liminal space in between the two. And the fact that you actually got to lay your eyes on what is probably a piece, a real piece of meat from the Kentucky meat shower is just like, what's left? Yeah, well, you know, right, sure. Yeah, what's what? Where does one go from here? Yeah, I don't know, but um, yeah, but it was definitely I. When I first heard that there might be some of it uh, left, it you know, I kind of had a, a a freak out, and it took me a long time to actually arrange a visit. And uh, and I, but I'm glad I did. It was uh, it was definitely worth it. And so to this day, the theory of vulture vomit has been universally accepted as the explanation for the Kentucky meat shower of 1876. Mm, Sounds a little fishy to us. Speaking of fish, since the beginning of recorded human history, there have been endless accounts, both oral and written, that have claimed that fish, frogs, snakes, spiders, insects, and other creatures have fallen inexplicably from the sky. This has become known as an animal rain. Bob Rickard and John Mitchell, in their book, The Rough Guide to the Unexplained, note that the quality of evidence for rains of fishes and frogs is good, with a canon of well-observed cases going back to antiquity. And according to author Jane Goldman, falls of animals were first recorded in AD 77 in Pliny's Natural History, which scoffed at the idea that they could rain from the skies, suggesting instead they grew from the ground after heavy rains. Herodocles Limbus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the 2nd century BC, writes, In Paeonia and Dardania, it has, they say, before now, rained frogs. And so great has been the number of these frogs that the houses and roads have been full of them. 
And many eyewitnesses could verify these stories, sometimes large groups of people and even entire villages. As recently as March 2nd, 2010, the Australian town of Lajamanu, fish fell abundantly from the sky. According to Daily Mall News, hundreds of spangled perch bombarded the 650 residents of Lajamanu, shocking local Christine Balmer, who was walking home when the strange weather started. She said, These fish fell in the hundreds and hundreds all over the place. The locals were running around everywhere picking them up. The fish were all alive when they hit the ground, so they would have been alive when they were up there flying around the sky. When I told my family, who live in another part of Australia, about the fish falling from the sky, they thought I'd lost the plot. Oh no, I haven't lost my marbles. All I can say is that I'm thankful that it didn't rain crocodiles. <laughs> Maybe not crocodiles, but in December 1857, live lizards raid down on Montreal streets. In May 1895, large black ants pelted Winnipeg during a thunderstorm. And on August 4, 1921, frogs rained out of the sky onto Calgary. The village of Yoro in Honduras celebrates the annual Festival de la Lluvia de Peces. To commemorate the rain of small silvery fish that allegedly happens at least once a year, and according to a Belgrade newspaper in 2005, thousands of itty-bitty frogs reportedly rained down on a town in northwestern Serbia. The frogs, differently from those usually seen in the area, survived the fall and hopped around in search of water. We could go on and on. The stories are endless. This strange animal rain even made it into an episode of The X-Files, in which Scully exclaims, Mulder, toads just fell from the sky. To which Mulder calmly replies, I guess their parachutes didn't open. And according to the New York Daily News and Associated Press, in 2012, a two-year-old Indiana girl was lifted into the air during a storm and, incredibly, carried into the sky and found alive 10 miles away. She would survive. It would later become known as the Indiana Baby Shower of 2012. (laughs) Okay, I made that up. The name, not the incident. There was also another story from the early 1900s of a Kansas teenage girl taken up by a tornado and dropped into a strange land where she would make friends with an odd but golden-hearted band of non-human misfits. However, it would be discovered some years later that although she indeed survived a tornado, she had only been dreaming about Oz. And although we digress here with a little humor, the point is that the stories of animals, people, and things falling from the sky have been fully embraced in our human experience, our cultural imagination, and help inspire some of our own most enduring fiction and folklore. So in the end, how do scientists explain all of these animals falling from the sky? According to National Geographic, The phenomena most associated with animal rain are waterspouts, although many meteorologists are skeptical that waterspouts can actually cause animal rain. Waterspouts form as violent storm clouds and swirl above a large body of water. These clouds form a tornado-like whirlwind that dips into the ocean, lake, or pond and may pull up small objects in their funnel water, pebbles, and small aquatic animals, as well as traveling birds and bats, frogs, snakes, and insects. 
As waterspouts and updrafts move over the land, they lose their swirling energy. The storm clouds that form the waterspouts are forced to dump their heavy loads. The heaviest objects are dumped first, and the lightest objects are dumped last. This explains why reports of animal rain usually describe only one type of animal raining down. In his book, Charles Fort would state that this scientific theory was nothing more than hogwash. He was particularly adamant about addressing the segregation of these animal rains, as explained in the previous passage. Why did almost all of the accounts of this mysterious phenomenon report that only one type of animal was falling in these showers? Only fish would fall, or frogs would fall, or snakes would fall, but never fish, frogs, snakes. Together. If one takes the previously offered scientific explanation, is there really that much weight difference between a small fish and a frog? Or a larger fish and a snake? And why does no other pond, ocean, or lake debris from the original source, mud, rocks, leaves, accompany these showers? He has a point here that indeed current science does not seem to fully satisfy. Fort would also challenge what he thought was scientific anomaly of these so-called water spouts, or the up-from-one-place-and-down-in-another theory that has been presented as a blanket explanation for all animal showers. He would say, a pond going up would be quite as interesting as frogs coming down. Whirlwinds we read of over and over, but where and what whirlwind? It seems to me that anybody who had lost a pond would be heard from. Once again, he has a point. The stories of these animal rains certainly documents the down in the other portion of the theory, but who has ever actually seen a whirlwind that so cruelly sucked up these helpless animals and rendered them airborne? There are virtually no historical accounts of whirlwinds being witnessed as they kidnap their prey in order to deposit them elsewhere. Even in the previous passage from the National Geographic, it admits that many meteorologists are skeptical that water spouts can actually cause this phenomenon. And Charles Fort was also making the point that we are so readily willing to embrace almost any and all official scientific theory of just about everything, as long as the idea comes from the cherished halls of a scientific institution. There is no benefit to these hallowed but hollow academies to listen to the amateur. He would say, we believe no more, we simply accept. Seems like he has another good point there. Charles Fort's Little Book of the Damned sold very few copies, but those who did read it would adopt an almost cult-like admiration for the man and his ideas. He would be one of the very first writers to deal extensively with paranormal phenomena. His concept of a physical world not confined to the theories of the close-minded scientist would influence the very search for the unusual and weird in the 20th century and have an influence way beyond the scope of his own original ideas. His impact on science fiction writers, paranormal investigators and researchers, ufology, and the theories of other curious amateurs cannot be overestimated. However, this foundational and seminal distrust of mainstream science would also prove, in the end, to be quite dangerous. After his death in 1932, his adherents, devotees, and disciples would form an organization called the Fortean Society, 
and carry forth not only his ideas, but would also mold a foundation of antinomian distrust of the scientific establishment, of the U.S. government, and general societal mainstream ideas. This would combine with a sporadic but ever-erupting geyser of American populism and anti-intellectualism to create dangerous conspiracies over the decades. And make no mistake, this marriage of systemic distrust and acceptance of outlandish ideas is with us to this day, most currently seen in the hordes of anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers that plague us in our current pandemic landscape. We are most certainly living in a Fortean era. In our previous episode about the Rufos UFO group in Circleville, Ohio, one of the members, Cameron, laments the fact that today he feels like UFOlogy is unfairly getting clumped in with all of the present-day alt-right conspiracies that have disabled our own national political discourse. He is correct, and it is unfair but it is hard to get the primordial interplanetary gelatinous goo back in the childproof bottle. It is a bit of a shame that Charles Fort's 1919 literary spasm of the tales of the unexplained partly devolved into something other than his original vision, which was the fact that we could never really ever know anything absolutely, and that the science of future generations, decades and centuries, would cause our present notions of certainty regarding our physical world to be upended again and again, over and over. Consider, he suggests, how the discovery of worlds other than our own would change how we perceive life itself. Our present scientific consensus, constantly, through the ages, will be rendered as ridiculous falsehoods. The perfect example being, of course, in microcosm, the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. There ultimately is no final certainty about our physical world around us, and information without contemplation, without doubt, and blind acceptance of orthodoxy is a fool's errand. His general thesis hovers gently over an undercurrent of sublime spirituality and rails against our incessant human obsession to have everything explained. The ultimate is unknowable, just like the wind, like the heavens, like the vultures, like the Nostok, and like God. He would say, nothing has ever been finally found out because there is nothing final to find out. It is like looking for a needle that no one has ever lost in a haystack that never was. Buddha himself couldn't have said it any better. Thank you so much for joining us. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q Files.